0: Heard, we are continuing in our series entitled Walk This Way. Um, Just out of curiosity, how many folks here were at the beginning of the series? Just hands up. Uh, Probably a better helper for me would. How many people have no idea what we're going to be ready to talk about? You've never heard of this whole Walk This Way thing. Oh, okay. All right. Good stuff. All right. That just lets me know how much review I need to do. So um, again, as we prepare and prep each series, one of the things that we do kind of in our hearts and minds and in our prayer time is try to understand exactly where our church is within the the life of its walk uh, with the Lord and uh, based on just some of the comments and ideas and struggles and tensions that we were having, um, we felt it was a great time to just really just double down on some of the true practical implications of what it meant to apply the Christian faith in, in meaningful ways. And so um, we decided to start a series kind of smack dab in the middle of the book of Ephesians, starting with chapter four, because that's where all the practical stuff comes from. Chapters one through three is where all of the the dense theological gems are being uh, excavated. And then, of course, Paul pivots and starts to tell us exactly how to apply that. Good morning, brother. It's good to see you. Um, And so with that. Um, That's what we're doing. And so we are now in uh, several messages down the tracks and talking about what it means to walk this way. Uh, In the back half, again, this second portion of the book of Ephesians, you'll notice several phrases over and over again. Walk in love, walk in unity, walk in this manner. So what does it mean? It means to carry out life, to conduct yourself in these very particularized ways. And so that's what we're doing, and that's what I'm going to hopefully do more of this morning. But before we start, let's ask for the Lord's help. If you need further review uh, to, as I call it, get a running start into what we're talking about this morning, feel free to go back to our our channel, uh, as well as our podcast, and you can kind of pick up uh, where we started, and I think it'll be very helpful for you. Um, Father God... I um, um, stand before you as a mere man, the only thing distinctive about me is the uh, indwelling of your Holy Spirit, and um, um, I am uh, no greater than or less than anybody else in the room, but this assignment that you've given me uh, comes with some very real implications and accountabilities, And as I think about the prospect of opening my mouth, and these words supposedly represent you, or not supposedly, I am confident they do when my heart is aligned with yours, um, I'm asking that you would do exactly that. Uh, I am always gripped when I stand up here um, by the words of your servant, Paul, when he said to the Corinthians, I came in among you claiming to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that their faith would not rest in the articulations or the, uh, the, uh, the uh, oratory skills of man, but their faith would rest exclusively in you and in your work. And to that end, the apostle Paul set aside, as I, Lord, Lord, set aside everything else that I know, try to concentrate it into the gospel in this moment, so that at the end of this, we would see a demonstration of your spirit. Let there be a demonstration of your spirit, Lord God. Let there be some sort of display that is so uniquely and distinctly brought about by the spirit of the living God that both the the most tenured as well as the first-time visitor would go to their cars and say, wow, we heard from the Lord today. He, he, he looked inside my life and he pulled forward something that I had never seen before. Or perhaps, Lord God, open our eyes to the fresh and beautiful, beautiful gems and strength of your word that we would experience full throttle doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that we would be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Lord God, let there be unity. Let there be perfection of the saint, equipping, Lord God, of the body for the work of the ministry. Lord God, all that your word says happens. Would you please let it happen now? Lord God, increase our love for your word, if we have grown bored with it, if our devotions have gotten dull, Lord God, would you re-enliven within us, Lord God, a fresh appreciation for your word. I also, Lord God, kind of turn uh, my heart now toward um, some of the most recent evidences of brokenness in our nation, specifically, Lord God, these new uh, shootings that have taken place. Um, I heard someone say, oh God, and I know you heard it in their hearts before it was articulated, that they're tired of hearing about prayers and thoughts being commended toward that particular direction. And Lord God, I would be tired too if I didn't think prayer actually did anything. I beg and ask, oh God, that you would, through your church, allow prayers to be filled with the same power that we see in the pages of Scripture, so that no one would ever grow frustrated with calling upon your name to have powerful impact. I pray, O God, that at the same time that you would uh, not only uh, empower our prayers, but you would also, Lord God, embolden our faith, because I remember the words of James when he says that if you show me your faith, Uh, by your works, well, without works, I'll show you my faith by my works, it's impossible for us to say we trust you deeply and we aren't doing something practically. So, Lord God, would you also help us as a church become an equally vivid representative of not just words well prayed, but also proper actions taken. Teach us and show us, each one of us in our respective spaces, whether it be a pastor or a deacon or whether it be a choir member or whether it be a person who simply Uh, passing by, if we belong to you, show us, Lord God, how to be salt and light in our respective spaces in bringing about resolution uh, to these things uh, that are in our country. Lord God, this is a solution that only you can provide. And while I do not thank you for this brokenness, I do thank you, Lord God, for the awareness that this is bigger than any singular piece of legislation or any singular medication or any singular strategy. We need a comprehensive response that is totally competent because it's brought on by the omnicompetent one, and that is you. Lord God, would you please hear our prayer and move us into action accordingly? Uh, I pray, oh God, that those families that have been affected would know your compassion, that those, Lord God, that are gripped with fear would know your peace. And I pray, oh God, that those leaders and legislators that are uh, well-positioned, or oh God, would move with wisdom and not be beholden to any specific agendas, Lord God, above just trying to produce the highest good for the nation that they've been entrusted to lead or the municipalities that they've been entrusted to lead. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, you've already heard some portion of the text read this morning, which is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I don't know if the version that you saw on the screen featured some of the same highlights that I um, provide here in my notes myself, but I'd love to just kind of read this gently and then uh, get started with our message this morning. Uh, Therefore, be imitators. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthy or filthiness, or nor uh, foolish talk or crude joking, uh, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, uh, that there may be for you. Uh, so you may make be sure of this: that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, uh, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, uh, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The Apostle Paul says these words against the backdrop of a community where there is an actual idol temple erected in the middle of town. And it's not just some place that people might casually pass by like a liquor store. It is a centerpiece in industry. Uh, As a matter of fact, there was riots that broke out in the city of Ephesus because the gospel was gaining ground and causing people to lose revenue and lose jobs because the spirit of the Lord was moving in such a way that it impacted industries that were anchored in evil. And so when the apostle Paul talks about this idea that these, these distinctive behaviors should not be found amongst the saints, he's drawn this clear line of demarcation that, hey, if you got saved from that thing and you're now coming to this temple, the temple of the living God, you should be living distinctly and you should be living differently. But before Paul gets into some of the granular particulars of how they should live and not live in this very distinctive way, he employs a very interesting phrase. He says, therefore, be Imitators, therefore be imitators. Now we have a phrase in our culture today that says that art imitates real life. And we are very familiar with the idea of imitation, but after today's message, I'm hoping that for the believer that that we'll do something. We have a slight modification when we think about how art imitates life. We also have another phrase. We say that imitation is the highest form of flattery. I believe that we're going to see something in today's text that demonstrates that imitation is not the highest form of flattery, but for the believer, it is the highest form of faithfulness. And that's where we're going this morning. When we talk about this idea of imitation, specifically as an art form, I'm absolutely certain that the Apostle Paul had in view some of the theatrical works of what we know as like memes, or excuse me, mimes, and we're going to discuss that in in greater detail. This idea of mimicry or mimicking things, it would be uh, uh, where uh, someone would write a play and maybe just through gestures or through actions, the audience would be able to kind of enter into that. And there's all kinds of gestures in life where through the arts, where the arts are imitating real life, that we get these very candid and vivid views in a, in a minuscule, small way that's pointing to a much bigger reality. When I was a little boy, one of the uh, uh, gestures of this type that I was really uh, taken by was this small, uh, artfully crafted um, metal pencil sharpener that was in the shape of the Sears Tower in Chicago. Uh, my grandmother kept it in a special drawer because it had been given to her as a souvenir from her daughter who was then living in Chicago. And I had never been to the Sears Tower. But this thing was so artfully done. Number one, I love to sharpen pencils. Uh, but number two, it was really dense and heavy. And the, the, the artist had spent a great deal of time carving out the windows and the little antennas and, and the terraces. And you, you could just look at this thing and you could understand something of the actual Sears Tower. Some years later, I would actually go to the Sears Tower, and I'd be like, oh my goodness, I remember this. Now, this is even more grand, but wow, I remember this. A similar experience would happen in my life because my grandmother also kept a drawer of postcards. Uh, She had a a brother who was in the Marines, and she had other family members. If we would go various places, you know, back in the day, postcards used to be a thing. I think they still are. They sell them. And one of the things that I cannot escape uh, uh, to just recall and bring to your attention about postcards is that these aren't just common photos. Have you noticed that postcards represent these really, really, really robust, colorful, highly textured representations of the place? Like, like, I remember my grandma having these postcards that actually had, like, a, a feel. And if you, you moved them, you could actually see the waters kind of shimmying down the fall. It, it, it was so vivid. It would look as if you could touch the rainbow. I mean, it was almost as if you were there. It was as close to being there as you could get without getting on an airplane to go and see the falls. And I love that about, uh, about these small gestures, well, why do I spend so much time on this? Am I trying to get us to get on a travel bench and summer is here, that's what I want to do? No. The reason that I bring up these small, minute gestures is because I believe that the walk of the believer should give the world an equally vivid glimpse into the heart of God. In other words, there is something that when people handle us, our little tiny minuscule lives, something like maybe a postcard or maybe something that has been sculpted, we ought to mimic something of the heart of God. We should provide such a vivid presentation that people want to actually go there. We should walk in such a way, we should walk out the Christian faith in such a way that our lives provide the most vivid presentation of what God is like that they have ever seen. And it compels them to want to seek him out. Jesus did it first. He said in John chapter 1, uh, verse 18, Jesus said these words. He says, listen, um, uh," well, John said these words about Jesus. No one has ever seen the father at any time, but the son have declared him. And then Jesus would even go further when you get into John chapter 14 when he was telling his disciples that I'm I'm going to a place and and, uh, I'm going to come back and get you. And the disciples were having this little dialogue like, man, we don't know where you're going uh, and and we don't know the Father. And he was like, have I been with you so long a time and you do not know me? In other words, Jesus says, I have given you the most vivid demonstration of the Father that you could ever behold without seeing the Father himself. And then Jesus I believe, turns around and hands the mantle of living these vivid and provocative lives that invite invite people to want to explore the heart of God, I believe he hands that duty off to us, the church. What does that duty look like? I believe the text bears out at least three ways that we ought to offer up some kind of imitation of God. The first one is, I believe that we are all called to be mimes. We're called to be mimes. Where do I get this from? Again, uh, the theatrical nuance of mimery or whatever you want to call it um, uh, is, is, is understood in the background of the Ephesian culture. It was, it was happening within the first century uh, uh, Greece um, uh, before this uh, text uh, came about, uh, first century B.C., and so uh, I, do, I do believe this idea of being a mime. Everybody know what a mime is? I don't know if you, most of us probably think that the pantomime is a French uh, uh, activity. You know, you got the guy with the, you know, the face paint and the little tiny mustache and the beret. We think that. No, no, no. that predates. This, as this is a theatrical device that comes out of Greece, and we're going to discuss it more in just a moment, right? Mimes. We should be mimes. Mimes, mimes. As a matter of fact, let's play a game. Uh, 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 how many of you think, here's what a mime does. Um... The mime, according to the scriptures or or according to a working definition, uh, is a theatrical technique of suggesting action and character or emotion without words using only gesture and expression. You guys ready? Let's do it. All right, here I go. right? I caught a boot instead of a fish, right? You got it, <laughs> right? But here, here it is, right? So again, I'm not looking for a career in improv. As a, pair of, as a matter of fact, this looks like it's way, way away from me. But, but, the, but, but I never said anything But you guys saw I was casting, I was fishing, you saw emotion, you saw disappointment, you saw all of that just through my mere gestures. Well, I believe when it comes to being imitators of God as is your children, that is exactly one of the aspects of of being a child of God that, that we are called into. There are certain categories of our lives that we will not be able to apply words to. It's just our movements will give people a vivid portrayal of whose we are and where we come from. I believe the text not only tells us that we should be uh, mimes. I believe that the text also tells us. Number two, we should be memes. We should be memes. We'll discuss this in more detail in just a moment. Where do we get this from? I'll explain later. Number three. This is the third. This is the third. I believe it calls us to be mediums. Mediums. Think about mediums in an artistic way, not the spiritual way. Right? It calls us to be mediums. So three things that I believe that are very much part of imitating God. And why do we want to imitate God? Because we want to work out or walk out our Christian faith in a way that gives people a vivid portrayal, even if in a miniature way, a vivid portrayal of who God is or into his heart. And in that vivid portrayal, not only inspire them, they should, like, I'm not impressed by postcards. I'm impressed by Niagara Falls. I'm not impressed by the pencil sharpener. I'm impressed by the Sears Tower. You get it? The idea is to live so vividly that people would be impressed by either the artist or the original, but not necessarily us. And I believe that's what the Scriptures call us to when it says to be imitators of God as dear children. So let's go a step further and unpack some of these. So therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, I love this additional after the comma, as beloved children. I think it's super critical for us to recognize that while all human beings are made in God's image as a function of our nature, right? We are made in his image. We emote. We have intellect. We have emotion. We have will, right? We have memory. We, 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 have, we have morality. We have rational capacity. We are made in the image of God. That is a very p- part of our nature. But not everyone who is necessarily made in the image of God is necessarily a child of God. The the, the distinction is relationship-oriented. The Bible puts it this way, that um, all who receive him, in John chapter 1, verses uh, 12 and 13, it says, but to all who receive him, that is to receive Jesus, Jesus came into his own, they didn't receive him not, but to all who did receive him and believe on his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So we don't create the right to become the children of God, faith in Christ creates that right. And this is a clear line of distinction to be drawn because I believe that there is a, a little bit of confusion and perhaps even a lack of conviction to just say, oh, well, we're all, you know, children of God. No, we're all made in the image of God. But, and that's a statement of nature. But a statement of nurture is that we have become children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that who were born, these are talking about the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. In other words, he is the one that is actually doing the work to make us his children. So we move from just having a nature of having been made in God's image to now being nurtured and becoming his children. You know the difference. Consider uh, if for a moment if I, um, uh, if I conceived a child and that child never grew up in a relationship with me. I am certain wherever this child is, it would look like me. It would bear some of my features. It would have some of the same genetic material. And it would be undeniable that this is my child, either by scientifics or or just by a visual check. But if the child didn't grow up in a relationship with me, there is no way that this child would model my ways because it didn't come under my what? My nurture, even though it shares my nature. So much so, I believe the Lord has given us this illustration to help us understand the difference between simply being made in his image and actually being one of his by way of his children. Every one of us is someone's child, and maybe some of us even have children. One of the great desires of every parent is to have their children to not only look like them, but to also in some way have them to live like them. Consider this, I mean, one of a parent's most proud moments it's when they overhear a conversation of their child in a situation in their own generational context, and they are handling that situation with the kind of virtue, value, and wisdom that they know they poured into them, even if they are not saying it the same way they would. It's like, wow, okay, okay, this thing is working. That's what makes us proud. Like, it's okay that a mom kind of looks like me. It's okay that Doria kind of looks like me. I'm, I'm cool with that, with that nature, but, but no parent, no parent worth their salt is just satisfied with a child who simply bears their resemblance. We want their character to be like ours, or at least we want their character to demonstrate that they've had some kind of positive and virtuous training from us. You see this born out on the soccer fields all over America somebody's child out there is killing it. I mean, racking up the goals, and you hear other parents chattering, whose child is that? And you don't want to say anything, but you just kind of lean forward and it's just kind of like this, wait for them to say it again, and then you maybe say their name. That's right, that's right Scotty. Stay with it, buddy. You know, so they'll know that this is your child, right? We, we get great pride when we see them doing something good. Now, if they're not performing well, great loving parents also encourage, that's okay, buddy. Next time, you'll get them. But do but, 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 but you know that, that swell that you feel when they're doing well? Well, God never retracts or withdraws his love from us because we're underperforming per se, but there is something beautiful, blessed, and awesome that the Father does bless when he sees our lives mimicking something of what he has put in us or modeling something of him. Every parent derives great pride from that. The Bible goes on to talk to us about this difference between just the nature of having been made in God's image and the nurture of every being his child. It very explicitly says in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, uh, 16, that for all who are led by the Spirit, that's an act of obedience, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. Notice the difference. It doesn't just say you're children of God just because. It says the children of God are those who are led by the Spirit. And so then, this work of mimicking the behaviors of God is one of the signatures of our both belonging to him, but also... It is a significant part of us giving witness to the world of what God is like. Remember, Christ comes into the world. No one has seen the Father at any time. But we learn his nature and ways through the behaviors of the Son. And now we have been handed that task for those that are his. We mimic his behaviors. And in very small, very small, tiny ways, while we'll never be able to display the whole character of God, the tiny portion that we do demonstrate is very much part of our responsibility. I mean, if if God is infinite, right, we can't even get our arms around him. we, We cannot comprehend him. Each of us, in our own way, when we are obeying God, we illustrate something of his character. And when the collective illustration of obedience and honoring God comes together, people see God in an incredible way. So this isn't just about obeying to get blessed, this is about obeying to to provide this vivid demonstration of God's character. We're called to be mimes. Something about the articulation of life tells a story of what God is like. Um, How we are tells a compelling story about whose we are. How we are tells a compelling story about whose we are. Let's move to the second one. The first one was, in, in, in terms of means of uh, imitation, we're called to be what? Mimes? The second one, we're called to be called to be memes. Can I get some uh, memes, memes, memes? There we go. Now, what is a meme, right? A meme, a meme, you know, we kind of know this is, the, the word meme has, you know, kind of forced itself into the American lexicon. Uh, of late, uh, within the last uh, decade or more. Uh, But it's a portrait of a single moment that conveys a transcendent message. Would you agree with that working definition? It's a singular moment, right? This is a singular moment that when we see it, it speaks volumes that transcends. We're called to be memes. Now, how does this come from the, the, the text? Look at what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as children. Imitators, right? So we got that piece. And walk in love as Christ loved us. And in here, look at this vivid imagery. Walk in love as Christ gave himself up for us, pointing, what is that? Pointing to the cross. We know of us can escape that image of the cross. That's a singular moment in time, right? With transcendent truth. And it says, and then out of that also, we want to be like a, a fragrant offering to God as a sacrifice, that's kind of some heavy language. How might it be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice? Well, so so our lives also offer up these fixed moments. There are these fixed moments in life where when we're when we when we're doing things, we give a little bit of a cameo that says to people, this is what God is like. So some of our movements, but just some of our fixed moments. It's a cameo. It says, but 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 here's the cameos that we're called to. It says to do them as a sacrifice. Now this is interesting language because when you look at Romans chapter one. Uh, but Romans chapter 12, verse one, it says, I appeal to you, therefore brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This would have resonated in two ways in a Roman audience, especially if there's Jews and Gentiles in the room. Obviously those that are coming out of idolatry would have been fully familiar with the movements of sacrifices taking place, live animals being sacrificed within the framework of a temple. And then at the same time, Jewish folk would have been fully familiar with the calendar of sacrifices outlined for them in the law and specifically disclosed on how they have to handle all of it in the book of Leviticus, right? So you ready for a brief study of the book of Leviticus? Here we go. In the book of Leviticus, there are at least 12 offerings that are illustrated here. Uh, The sin offering, the guilt offering, the efficacy offering, the burnt offering, the wave offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the thanks offering, the votive offering, the free will offering, and the ordination offering. Anybody want me to read those again? Do you plan on trying to hold on to them and memorize them? Well, glory be to God, you don't have to try to memorize all the offerings. But I do want you to go back and read the book of Leviticus. You might enjoy it now. Here's why you might enjoy the book of Leviticus. I believe that if you read the book of Leviticus, it will exponentially increase your appreciation for Christ's work on the cross. Here's why. The reason that we no longer have to go to a temple and hire a full-time priestly staff to conduct these sacrifices for us on a regular basis or keep special goats without spots in our backyards that we can't eat because we got to take them to the temple or we have to find pigeons and pull their wings off or save special grain for God and pour wine on a flame and hope God don't get us and that he really does receive our sacrifice. The reason you and I no longer have to do that is because all those sacrifices were culminated. They, 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 They culminated in the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, Jesus satisfied because each one of those sacrifices have a particular voice. Anybody here been to Bed Bath & Beyond, Yankee Candle, one of these other places? All them little colorful candles you buy, they got voice. That's why they're called votive candles because they're saying something. Like it's, it's you, know, you know, you know passion melon water. Oh, I want my house to smell like that. We don't even know what that is. But we buy it. It was like, you know, I'm like this passion melon water, baby. It's in here. The candle is supposed to be making a statement, right? You know, Pumpkin New Horizon. What is that? You know, it don't even know Horizon. You know what I mean? But, but these candles have all these names. And when you light it, what you're saying is that that statement is being released in our home, right? Well, here's, here's the other deal every time a sacrifice was conducted in the Old Testament, it had a statement. This is why it, was a, it, was a, it, was, it smelled good to the Lord when he met his approval. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament, it, there, was, there was one for sin. It says, Lord, I'm guilty and you're holy. There was a guilt offering. Lord, something happened between me and my fellow man that should not have happened. There was a, There's a burnt offering, which is consumed in its entirety, nothing left off the table, which says, Lord, I'm totally yours. I'm all here. The wave offering, which was thanksgiving. The grain offering, which was often uh, like a a compliment to many of the other offerings that they gave. But all of these things, all of the articulation, every single one of these 12 offerings shed light on a particular aspect of God's character. And they made a statement about a particular uh, category of relationship with God. And then he says, all right, so that you don't have to maintain that, I'll satisfy and fulfill all sacrifices in Christ." But when all uh, all sacrifices were satisfied in Christ, it didn't eliminate the need and the call for us to also do life as a living sacrifice. My life ought to be like a votive candle as it is being used up in exchange for God. It says, thanks, I'm thankful. It says, Lord, I'm grateful. It says, Lord God, I recognize that I'm sinful and you're not. My life is a sacrifice that is actively being expended. It is a meme In a fixed moment of obedience, I am making a clear statement about God's character, worship him, and I am giving him reverence. And so while Christ has satisfied all of these, he calls us in a way to demonstrate or to display them in each one of us. So the reason I want you to read the, the book of Leviticus, despite your desire, consider reading the book of Leviticus... Like when you go to the grocery store and there's something that you really love and enjoy, like on the front of the box, you're like, ooh, this is my favorite. And you say, but what's in here? And you flip it on the back. And there's stuff in there that you can't pronounce, but it's important to you to see what it is, isn't it? That's your Leviticus. Go read the back of the box on the cross. This is all that God has done in Christ. This is all that he satisfied. This stuff that you couldn't handle. He took care of it. And now we just wonderfully enjoy. He's put in all the work. But yet, while we enjoy, he does enjoin in, in us or, or engage us and say, would you now model these sacrifices that I have fully satisfied in Christ? And so, here we are. We reached the last one. We are called to be, what's the first one? Mimes. Right? Um, memes. Right? And to be what else? Medium. To be mediums. That's right. Again, don't think about spooky spiritual mediums. Think about medium in a sense like uh, an artistic medium is like a sculpture. An artistic medium is like a painting. Something that uh, an artist uses to convey a message to his audience that engages their senses. I believe that through the body of Christ, when we read this text, but sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you such as is proper for saints. We use this word saints, and then the Lord says, okay, well, how do they even know what that means? Are we just going to walk around with dictionaries on our chest or name tags that says we're saints? There is a very particular engagement of the world's sensibilities that the Lord wants to have through us that clearly and fully defines what it means to be a saint. And one of the ways is through distinctive living. And so then... Through this, through this, I believe that there are three major distinctives, at least three that I see in the Scripture. Not only three, but at least three that I see in the Scripture that the Lord wants His people to be fully familiarized with when it comes to being saints and what, and what we are mediums of. What, what truths are we conveying through our lives? There's a great truth concerning God's throne. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches His disciples immediately and us by association how to pray. And one of the, the lines in that prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is that to happen? Magic? No, through the medium of God's people. We, 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 we people use this phrase all the time, the kingdom of God. What does the active dominion and kingship of Christ look like over the lives of people, except their lives fully articulate his dominion? Number two. I believe the Lord only wants us to be to, to, to through the medium of our own lives, articulate to the world and to ourselves, the kingdom, but also the temple, the temple. First Corinthians chapter six uh, uh, says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. Therefore, or so glorify God in your body. What is the temple of God? Our lives articulate that. We become the medium through which God crafts that out and further defines it for his target audience. And then there's a third reality, the church. Who are they and what are they? One of the, one of the greatest misdefinitions of all time The church is perceived to be a building on the corner with a steeple on the top and a marquee out front that tells you the service times. But the reality is, the church is this. It is this place where this activity is supposed to happen. John chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, whoever believes in me uh, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these shall you do. Jesus says that our works will even further exceed his. Because I am going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father will be glorified in the Son. So the medium is a means through which the artist conveys something much larger than what the people are actually looking at. The Bible says things like, not only your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but it says, the mind that is in Christ now also be in you. What we should understand is this, and as I close, whoever's coming to the keys, do your thing. Whatever is happening in a church, the Lord is not only building a church, but he is actively sculpting a people, chiseling and sculpting. Recognize that we are not a smooth and perfect finished product. I don't know if you've ever seen a robust, really good sculpture before, but a, but a, but a, but a sculpture is this incredible work that comes from this incomplete, just nameless block, and then just, just the artist just kind of goes through with the end in mind, chiseling away all of the rough edges, giving it very particular detail, painstaking detail that is incredibly textured, and it gives us this 3D presentation. That's the beauty of a sculpture. It's not a painting. It gives us a 3D view, and this is the kind of vivid view that God wants the lives of his people to have for the world and also for themselves. So in all of this, why can't just, why can't just Rashad minus Jesus just do all this? Why is why is believing in the gospel necessary? Well we know that our nature does not inherently pursue this. There has to be a nurturing But nurturing doesn't just come from traditional conditioning. We have found out by looking at our own selves in the mirror that there is something that is broken inside of us that needs to be fixed, not just something outside of us that needs to be maintained. What the gospel does is when we place faith in Jesus Christ that he died in our place on the cross for our sin, and was raised in victory over sin, death, and the devil, the three great forces that work against all mankind, the Bible says we then receive the Holy Spirit. And when I receive the Holy Spirit, is isn't just like some penny in my pocket that's going to wash out in the dryer. The receiving of the Holy Spirit then, he says that he lives in me and he animates within me and then he lives. He's not just just sitting in there crouched down. The Holy Spirit is actively animating in the life of the believer, empowering us and giving us the capacity to follow God and to imitate him. In other words, a new spiritual DNA is being deposited And as the Holy Spirit articulates himself in us, then he testifies not over himself, but then he points us to not only that we need to be, that we need to animate or imitate God, but he points us to the template of what we should imitate. And that is the example of Christ. He drives our hearts back to the word and he causes our eyes to see more than just words on a page, but to actually see principles that are powerfully and beautifully connected. And then getting people who would never dare so do before today to go back and read the book of Leviticus. But that's what the Holy Spirit does, creates this really unique and incredible gravity and transformation that we know we could not work on ourselves. And that's why we need the gospel. Apart from the work of the gospel, there is no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And apart from the work of constantly looking at the template of the Christ, we don't know what to animate in order to be like Christ. We need the gospel powerfully working in us, both removing the shackles that would preempt us from being able to work well for God, And also powerfully working against all of the rough edges within us that still aren't responsive to God. The things that are very much part of our nature, but yet have yet to respond to God obediently by way of nurture. So the believer's walk should give the world a vivid glimpse. We are like a postcard or a miniature statue. A vivid glimpse of the heart of God. I want to pray for us in this respect. Father, in the name of Jesus, as you kind of pan the room, I believe what your word says it says that uh, there's no place that is hidden from your word. It also says that your word will always be effective in completing what, it's, what, it, what it set out to do. And I just, Lord God, lean on the efficiency and the effectiveness of your word. And I ask that as you're searching the room, you would show those of us who are struggling to live like your mimes. We're struggling to imitate you. And it's deeply embedded within us. I mean, we got some other areas that we're, 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 we're knocking it out of the park, but we got others, Lord God, where we really struggle. Lord God, we need you. Please empower us by your spirit to be imitators. Lord God, there's some of us who, we, we see mixed moments of obedience, but we want to be people who worship you in spirit and in truth and that our obedience will continue to illustrate something of your character, shed light and project something of your character, but at the same time, something that would um, just solicit your presence. We wanna be with you. And we know that you, you are with those who obey you in unique ways. Lord God, we also wanna be your mediums. We aren't just living for ourselves. We want to showcase to the world the power and the effectiveness of our God. Would you, Lord God, smooth out the rough edges in our lives? I pray for the person today who, do not, who does not know you in the parting of their sins pray for the person oh God who all of this sounds like a foreign language but something of it is gripping and convicting I pray for that person that they would Lord God bow their head even if in the privacy of their own car and heart or after they get home or even now that they would say Lord if this stuff is real would you make it real to me Lord God would you give them a vivid display of your heart I pray for the person that doesn't know you knows you well walk with you for a while But if God, Lord God, rough edges that need to be chiseled, Lord God, would you chisel in a beautiful way that only you know how to do? I pray for the person who in all of this, oh God, has been living robustly, being a vivid demonstration of your heart, but there's one thing lacking. They don't belong to a local church. They don't belong to a community with which to be imitators in plural as children of God. They're on a solo mission And, Lord God, because of that, they're not experiencing the fullness of what you've intended for their lives in the local body. Lord God, would you appeal to that person as well to find a church. It doesn't have to be Gospel Hope Church. I'm not so selfish as that. They can go anywhere. But, Lord God, would you allow that person to be drawn into a relationship with a local fellowship as an expression of the next step of faithfulness and imitating you and not just flattering you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.